This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. So I'm going to do something a little different today. Usually I have a whole spiel planned for my guests, and I list awards and accolades. And our guest today definitely has those things and is a a well-known chef um, in the food world. But I'm going to let our guest Tunde Wei explain his work and what he does. Tunde, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. It's fantastic. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> uh, explain my work and myself. Um, when people ask you what you do, yeah. what do you say? So I say I'm a cook and a writer. Um, and I'm, but before all that, I'm a Nigerian. I'm an immigrant. And I think those are sort of like relevant labels because they affect most of what I do except when I'm sleeping (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah so I use food um, and my writing to sort of interrogate um, normativity or the orthodoxy in different spaces Mm -hmm. Um, so I have been and I am you know just critical of ideology that um is dominant in whatever space. So if it's like, you know, progressive or movement thinking in that space, you know, I think my work is to use food to um, help uh, um, put a light on the inconsistencies in those spaces. And similarly, of course, you know, the bigger threat, I think, is the more conservative neoliberal ideologies. And so also using food to... um, uh, show the massive inconsistencies hmm. there too. I don't know if that makes any sense. It, yeah, okay. it does. Um, so that all of those things kind of come together in these events that are um, really distinctive. Um, so you kind of use, use dining in this kind of subversive way. Uh, so you've done things like uh, what I... We were first introduced via an article that I was writing about a pop-up counter that you were doing in New Orleans. Thank you very much for um, writing that, by the oh, way. Oh, no, it was my pleasure. Yeah. Um, and can you explain this pop-up lunch counter that you did? Absolutely. So um, the name of the stall was S-A-A-R-T-J. And um, it was a space where I was uh, interrogating racial wealth disparity. It was in New Orleans. Um, and what I did was for a month, I served a single um, a, a, a single dish for lunch, and it was regularly priced at twelve dollars. Um, and after going through a series of conversations and interactions with the customer, um, I asked w- folks who self-identified as white um, if they wanted to pay two and a half times more, thirty dollars, which represents the income the racial income gap in new orleans so uh, between white and black folks specifically and um so the stall using food was a way to so like show the true cost um of say food but the true cost in general and the cost burden um of 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 things for folks of color um in in the city Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you recently did a pop-up in Nashville called Hot Chicken Shit. Which you did not write about. I didn't. <laughs> I wanted to. I tried. We'll talk about that off air. Okay. The conversations I had <laughs> about writing about that. Um, but you, Hot Chicken Shit was yeah. tackling gentrification, specifically the displacement of black 
um, is it Nashvillians? Yeah, Nashvillians. Yeah. Nashvillians is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, black residents from the city, you know, due to gentrification. Yeah. So Nashville is an interesting uh, place. I, I had never been there before. I I didn't. I mean, I knew it existed, of course, but it wasn't. It, it's not this place that comes to people's minds as a cosmopolitan city. It is. Nashville, um, and I'm saying this because this is true for me to the extent of my knowledge of the world right now, is uh, is gentrifying in an, anecdotal, in an anecdotal sense, but also in a statistical sense, right? In different places and communities, people talk about gentrification. And I believe that what you perceive is also real, right? So there's a perception of gentrification, but there's also the reality of gentrification. In Nashville, those two things actually like coincide. Mm. And you can see white people just everywhere, just overrunning the place, crawling out of sewers and jumping off rafters. They're everywhere, right? White people everywhere. Oh, white people. White, sorry, <laughs> white like, people. They're are you everywhere. talking about everybody? Or? Yeah, no, white people. <laughs> okay. Uh, just like a plethora. Um, but then you can also, there are also statistics that show um, that the city is changing con considerably and we know because of y you know the the history of cities in america um that when resources left folks of color were, were, were made to stay in a in a sense um and now that it, the sort of um the trend or the fashion has changed and city living is uh is more um is is is, is more in in style, uh, now folks of color are being forced, black folks um, to be specific, are being forced to move out. So in um, in uh, Nashville, the work that I was trying to do was to, it was two things. And um, The first thing was I identified a census block group in North mm -hmm. Nashville, which is a historically black community. And a census block group is the smallest statistical unit of measurement that the government collects information on, on, on folks for um, the census. And this um, census block group is black, working class, and facing gentrification pressures. There's actually census tract 142, census block group one, to be specific. Uh, and this community, this, uh, this area has about 300 properties. And we wanted to to purchase all the potentially rentable units in uh, 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 um, properties in that area. Uh, because what was happening is that people were moving in and one of two things would happen, right? They would either buy a, a, a property that would say a duplex or a triplex, um, renovate it, and then take the prices up, and which will force the tenants to move out because um, of the increased... Um, rent, or they would bring the property down and build what they call tall and skinnies in Nashville. So they would put like these two modern-looking buildings on this on one um, um, lot, and then those properties go for half a million dollars. Hmm. Um, so we wanted to, I wanted to move the inventory of, uh, or move inventory out of market rate housing, or sorry, out, out of the um, market. And move that to um, a community land trust. Mm -hmm. I'm saying a lot, but back to, to hot chicken. <laughs> <laughs> we were gonna. I was gonna sell hot chicken for exorbitant sums, and t the money that we got from the sale of the hot chicken, we're gonna use to purchase um, these properties that we will then transfer to a community land trust, which um, does work to keep properties permanently affordable by deed restricting the properties and also um, through income re uh, requirements having folks who make a certain amount live in that community so it preserve the integrity of, of the community yeah that's the project mm. yeah um, it's really fascinating and it really confronts make pe makes people confront these really uncomfortable things and um I think in food media, we like to have this like narrative of like food brings us together yeah. and warm, fuzzy feelings. And we're all like sitting around the dinner table and the, the pop-ups that you host, like really confront that and say, you know, well, who is sitting at this table yeah. who historically has been invited to sit here? Exactly. And how do we make it more? We've had a talk about the word equitable. Yeah. <laughs> what did I say about it? That the last time when we had, yeah. Oh, you were saying that, um, 
No, it, it wasn't equitable. It was oh, repar- is it reparations? Reparations. Yes. Ooh, yeah, yeah, we should talk about we, that. We, we, yeah, we had a, a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. Yeah. In particular with the um, the New Orleans story with the lunch counter. Yeah. Um, when I was writing the piece, you know, people were saying, oh, is it reparations? And I was really uncomfortable with that because reparations, it, it just didn't feel right. And then you and I had a conversation about that that word in particular, especially mm-hmm. like pertaining to your project and like yeah, the idea that like um, that white people have to like give black people things mm-hmm. is really, um, it's really destructive. Yeah, of course, because it doesn't belong to them in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't remember the context of that particular conversation around reparations, but I remember that what had happened, and I don't know if, if I can say this, you can say whatever you want on the show. You can edit it later. You <laughs> no, know, this, it'll just all go out. Okay, well, kind of, but you, the person who was editing your writing was a white person, mm-hmm. and they had used that word, and I hadn't used that word. And then you were, and I think they had maybe tweaked your language to include that, and you were uncomfortable with they that. Added, I hadn't used the word reparations at all, and they yeah. added it in. Yes. And I pushed back against that. Yes. Because I didn't use that word, you didn't use yeah. that word. And you know a, a white editor adding that word yeah. <laughs> as a there's layers of the, yeah exactly and I remember there. we talked yes exactly so we so we talked and that was the thing, uh, so interestingly enough when I did the Nashville hot chicken shit project, um, I started off from a place of reparations. That was what I started off with, like, or rather I would say reparative um, justice, mm-hmm. and. Um, our, so we raised through the our sale of hot chicken. Um, uh, we raised a hundred and two thousand dollars. Mm. One lady gave a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And a, a white lady. And we had had a conversation. And in that conversation, um, I expressed this idea of reparations because part of what was happening was like I said, "You're going to give this money, and you're not going to be at all involved in what happens." Um, but then, you know, I, I also want to say that I, I realized in, in saying that, that you then build a, a, a relationship with somebody who's giving a hundred thousand dollars, uh, and who isn't asking any questions, but then I feel like, oh, I think I should maybe tell you <laughs> exactly what's happening, <laughs> but that's a separate thing. Um, but because I started with this idea of reparations, and because also to the project, I, I was the, the project was part of a, of a group show, group public art show, mm-hmm. and it was funded by the city. And so they gave me, the, I, I can say this, they, they paid me $10,000 um, to work over three months. And that included a bunch of things. But that was the money that I got. And I felt like, okay, I need to do something with this, uh, like pay my bills and shit. But I also need to like, sort of um, leverage this money to, to, to do more. And because of the affiliation with the city, the city's art departments or art council, I also had access to other people in the city who were making decisions around issues. And so I remember I, I approached the, the gentleman who, who runs the city of Nashville's economic development office like he oversees the distribution or the allocation of billions of dollars or at least manages what that looks like investments coming in and uh, payments going out so he's pretty important in the city and my approach of reparations while i didn't use that word was manifesting how i how i came at him i'm like yo you all need to, to give up some money mm-hmm. and he was like no of course like, he was of say, course like yeah he was gonna no say, and and, <laughs> and and like what happens is they all these formulas right like how much it costs to build a building how much taxes the city is gonna get from building this building what is the potential tax revenue um when this building is built and then this spurs development elsewhere if we do like tax increment um financing which is delayed delaying our um revenue um, so that we can get more, so we so we don't we use tax money to finance development projects so that we can make more money. So there are all these fucking things happening, and then somebody walks in and says, "You know, give me, give me money, <laughs> right. right?" And then so I had to, 
I had to be tactical and say, all right, let's talk about financing. If we raise money by selling hot chicken, how can we leverage the money that, 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 we, that we raise through these hot chicken sales mm-hmm. to purchase property? Because the truth of, of the reality that I saw is that everybody thinks gentrification is a problem. But every, most of everybody is stuck in a paradigm that says the only way out of this problem is through the same prism that got us there, which is this like economic framework that is interested in, in, in highest and best use of property of people. And they, you cannot make an economic argument that makes sense in favor of um, giving people affordable housing. It, it just doesn't happen. And that's why we have a deficit of affordable housing. We have a deficit of market rate housing in areas that are so-called um, d- desirable. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Oh, no, don't be sorry. That's, yeah. That kind of brings me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that I think so many chefs are like, I'm going to host a pop-up or dinner series. And it's kind of focused about them and their expressions of, you know, whatever cuisine they cook or you know don't cook or whatever um and using restaurant spaces in that way to kind of express themselves but i see your work as you know an exploration of the way things are right now yeah and how we got here yeah um someone asked me if your work was more kind of you know closely tied to the art space or to the dining space right I have I have my thoughts, but what do you who, think? Who is is cutting the check? <laughs> <laughs> so it depends, right? Like, so I, 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 I am I, I have been and I am in group shows, like the 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 work in so interesting. Like the work in Nashville was like artwork. It was like it was like, it was uh, public art, like technically. I was paid by the Art Commission of Nashville. And um, I remember a friend of mine who was like hanging out and writing about my work said that, oh, this is different from what you're doing. This is like community um, organizing, right? Because we had these meetings in the community. We're talking to, I, I was talking to folks from the community and they were saying like really hard and important things that are not sexy. They're talking about like, yo, you know, Development is happening. I've been in my home for 50 years and my um, tax <coughs> liability just um, went up. That's not sexy. And he says, like, I feel like, you know, the work that you do around race and immigration is conceptual and it's like it's sexy or whatever. Um, but that's strange because like that was that was like that was an art project. Right. And I'm doing another I'm part of another group show in Pittsburgh. Um, um, and. I'm doing a project about, uh, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm hosting, I'm, I'm doing a, a dinner series to facilitate love marriages between U.S. citizens and immigrants by hosting first dates that are blind dates. Um, so, so, so that's also okay. an outcome, but, like, but, there, but there's, there is this like outcome, which is a love marriage um, that I have in mind. So I don't know, it's just, it, it depends on, 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 Who's paying? So you're okay. Um, you're hoping to. You're basically hosting blind dates, and you're cooking for these blind dates, and hoping that they get married. Yes. Wow. I mean, isn't that how? Isn't how it works? People have a date, and then they eventually get married. Yeah. But some, then, but then we. Yeah, but we're stating from the from the outset, like we hope you get married. From the outset, yeah. just you know, we enjoy hope. your meal, and I hope this ends in marriage. Exactly. I mean, and this is. This happens on uh, uh, Match.com. It happens on Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire, Bachelor, Bachelorette. I mean, it's the sort of uh, the digitization of love and relationships. It's mm-hmm. like quicker. And so why not do that before um, the new Congress is <laughs> sworn in? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so one of the first places that I came across your work um, was uh, Detroit Paper, and it was um, an essay that you'd written, and you you owned a restaurant in Detroit. I did. Yeah, um, and you were talking about kind of your 
what your the impetus for for doing so and kind of what you learned about yourself in the city. Um, can you talk about that piece? Which 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 piece is this? Do you, um, is it uh, the piece in City Lab? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, I wrote it. I think it was published last year. And right is that? It's called the uh, whitewashing of a food scene. And I basically talk about how Detroit is a predominantly black city and popular food as celebrated by media, awards, investment, um, capital, is white. And that's crazy to me. And then I also, I also sort of like chart my complicity in that, in that I opened up a restaurant with a friend and we were serving predominantly white people what I, I would classify white food, which is sort of like modern new American food. And um, I didn't have sort of like any sort of like critical race consciousness at the time. Um, I mean, I, I had some consciousness, but, um, but yeah, so I, I, I talk about having this restaurant and then wanting to expand and then sort of like going to um, the offices of um, Bedrock. So Bedrock is a company that is owned by Quicken Loans, and Quicken Loans is owned by Dan Gilbert, who is a billionaire who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers, who has his headquarters in Detroit, and he moved his headquarters from the suburbs of Detroit into the city, and that like spurred what we are now seeing. I think that was a huge inflection point. He poured in billions of dollars in, into the downtown area, buying up skyscrapers, bringing in his um, employees from the suburbs into the city. This was in concert, too, with um, the other anchor institutions in the city, the universities, um, the nonprofits. It was, a, it was a coordinated thing, you know, to, pop, to repopulate the city um, that was losing folks. And um, I went in there because we wanted to move from where we were or have a second location in the downtown area and he, he walked in, into this office and the real estate development or the real estate director of the company showed us this model of the city and I'm looking at it and it is Detroit there was downtown Detroit and he's just like pointing at things he's like we own this we own that we own this we own the master lease to this to that and I was like fuck you own everything <laughs> right mm-hmm. and in that moment I, I remember thinking like oh shit that we Myself in that restaurant thought that we were doing something different and subversive. That we had this like little cool quirky restaurant, um, and that this was the alternate reality that we were creating. But like this man with billions of dollars has the might and has so like the the will and the capital to exert his idea of what the city should be on everybody, and that the war that was being waged wasn't even really a war that if my restaurant represented a certain sort of like um you know diy like hipster um response to more corporate america that in fact those two things were symbiotic and that my restaurant and myself and people like me young um mostly white people who were part of this downtown detroit community that was very active and engaged in um the so-called revitalization of Detroit, um, and that was also progressive, that they were just, in fact, laying the groundwork for what will be this new um, hyper-capitalist um, Detroit. And, and this is true everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of like first wave of folks who gentrify, and not even to say that I was part of a first wave, but any wave is part of a larger ocean, and there's a larger ocean of consumption, of whiteness, of um, uh, of capital. But the, the 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 problem that was real and never admitted was that not only were we complicit, we were actually like tilling the the soil, mm-hmm. fertilizing it in service of this um, larger, um, you know, distinct distinctly undemocratic process where one person decides because they have capital what the city uh, um, would look like and I and people will disagree in fact I know people somebody 
this one gentleman who um, who was like uh, a top executive at uh, at a car company in Detroit who I was friends with, you know, who owned a restaurant and who was white, disagreed with me. And I could tell that I was right because all the people who had come to Detroit like around the same time that I had done and who were trying to do the small DIY things, eventually, some of them eventually ended up working for this gentleman, this mm. Dan Gilbert fella. So I could see the, 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 the acute connection yeah. that was. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so um, fascinating that it, from there you moved into a, this role of like, you know, using discomfort to um, confront people with, you know, these, like you said, those, those waves of, of, it's not, it's basically just like pushing people color out yeah. of, of places. And, That's what it is. And we, I can't believe we haven't used the word capitalism yet. Yeah. But <laughs> that's basically is it, it, and what it is. The thing that fucks you up is that it's good people that, that that are doing this, right? Good people, people who say they're good. Um, like I just, you know, I'm just trying to get a good deal on on a home. I'm just trying to, you know, be in a community of people that I relate to, and. I don't know. It's. It's. I mean. I. I'll, I would be honest and say it's hard for me, in those sort of like interpersonal interactions, to fault people. You know. I'm like. I understand what you're saying. I mean. I disagree with you, but I understand what you're saying. And I. I, I don't have the. Uh, I don't have the energy to disagree with everybody who I. Uh, who I think, uh, is wrong, all the time. It's just like exhausting, and especially when, the reality is so pervasive. You know, is inescapable. That in that that this is the normal way of doing things, and so my only sort of the only outlet that I have that that is that creates um, some safety and doesn't like engender insanity for me is through my dinners. Is that I can be blunt and forceful and say like this shit is fucked up, but I don't have to say it to every white friend that I have or every black person who's a friend of mine who also thinks in this sort of like corrupted um, sort of way. Like I can just like fuck it. I, I can be chill. We can just talk about fucking soccer or we can talk about some other shit. I don't have to like be on the prowl every single day. But in my work, I can, in my writing, I can, I can um, write about it. Mm-hmm. In my uh, dinners, I can do the same thing. Um, in my the talks that I give publicly, I can do the same thing. On interviews, I, I can do that too. Um, but it's stressful in all these places as well. It's even more stressful to um, to try and tell, if, you know, using this specific example, a white person that you're, you know, you're pushing black folks out, you know, and even have them admit it, but then throw their hands up like, well, what, what can I do? You know, well, you, you can leave. But you know nobody wants to. <laughs> yeah. You can do that. You you can get the fuck out. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> get out. All right, so we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more with Ten Day Way. This program is brought to you by Jewel Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Jewel user. I use Jewel to help me host the most delicious dinner parties. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Paired app is super intuitive and has a great visual dentist guide. Jewel is awesome for prepping many perfect portions, making it easy to cook for a crowd, and it's hands-free so you can focus on entertaining while Jewel does the work. And pro tip, Jewel is also great for travel. I throw mine in my suitcase if I'm headed to a rental house with any kind of uncertain kitchen. From perfect steak to juicy, tender Thanksgiving turkey, Jewel makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save some room for mini jars of pumpkin pie. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. 
That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code H-R-N. All right, so we are back with chef, author. Um, what else do you want on there? Just a kid from the park. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> We're back with Tunde Way. <laughs> so uh, this, is, this is the part of the show where we get like a little more personal. I know you are a proud Nigerian from, I'm going to say it wrong. Yeah. La, La, Lagos. Lagos. I, al- I always try to yeah. pronounce it right and I always fuck it up. Well, it's, it's uh, Portuguese. So I'm sure Lagos is maybe how it's pronounced in, in Portugal. But it's Lagos, where we're from. Lagos. Yeah. Lagos. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll get that right. Get that right. Um, what do you remember about like dining there? And do you, how often do you go back? Uh, I haven't been back in 18 years because mm. of my immigration status. So I lost my status when I um, stopped when I ended my schooling, which is why I came here, and I haven't been back, and so I've been sort of undocumented until I, I was I was documented for maybe my first eight, five to eight years in America. I don't know how long, maybe five years, and then undocumented since then until maybe like uh, J- June of this year when I got like my first documentation, which is like a work permit. So I'm now tenuously documented. I don't have like an official status, but I'm applying for a green card. So yeah. Uh, but the question was when I, I haven't been back mm-hmm. in 18 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about dining there? We, uh, my family didn't. We didn't dine out. Um, there was no like dining out culture. We did go to like Chinese restaurants. Um, Maybe like a couple of times, like once a year or something, we'll go to this Chinese restaurant at a hotel close to our house. Um, I remember like one time my mom like tipping. I was like fucking five years old and she like she left money on the table. And I'm like, what's happening? It's <laughs> <laughs> like it's for the gentleman. I'm like, how how is he gonna know? I was just like, cause I I, I wasn't used to any of this. Um, but then we would also, uh, the, like dining would be like, we would, there would be a roadside um, kiosk that would be selling roasted meats called suya. Mm. So we'll get that, you know, or, excuse me, sometimes my parents would go to this like joint, like a, uh, like a restaurant, but not a restaurant at all. Like somebody had like, was making some food in their home. And they would get these like specialty um, dishes, like isiewu, which is goat head stew, which came from the southern part of Nigeria. And we lived in uh, the southern eastern part of Nigeria, and uh, we lived in a different community altogether. We lived in the west, yeah, western Nigeria. So it was like a delicacy. So we would get that. So so dining out was was that, or dining out was like when my mother's relatives were coming from where she lived again in, in, a, in another part of the country and they would bring um, these like soups that were intricate and like only a couple of people could make it really well and they would bring like um, smoked game from so that was what our experience was most of our experience was like either eating at home or eating at other people's homes during parties yeah wow um, so Yemi who yes. has been Yemi Amu who's amazing and has been on this show before um, yes, yes. she also grew up in Nigeria and remembers uh, she talked about Chinese food restaurants a yeah. lot and how different the, the Chinese food is in Nigeria you know, compared to here yeah I, I was so young I don't remember like I remember like the hot chili sauce and the spring rolls but I don't remember you know the other thing too we would go to bakeries there was a mm. there was a Filipino bakery uh, I think I think it was Filipino owned called Big Treat and they had like all sorts of fucking big goods that were amazing. Um, and that so that would be we would do that, and then maybe once in a while we'll go to like a pizza shop. But it wasn't it was irregular. Yeah. So when you came to America, where did you come first? Where did Detroit. you stay? Detroit. Detroit. Yeah. Okay. We moved to Detroit. My mother's sister lived in Detroit. So when we came, my brothers and I we lived with her. 
Yeah. Do you remember like your first experiences with um, American food? I'm making air yes. quotes because you know whatever. I do that actually. Means. I do, and I'm not sure if this is real or if I'm making it up, but um, I think it's so true that the, when I came uh, that night, I remember. I, I think so because I, I remember it happening. But I asked my cousin, who it was like he's probably like five years older than me. So when I was 16, he was like maybe 19 or 18 or 20, uh, if he could take me to McDonald's. Because I've had, I'd had burgers before. Like, Nigeria had, like, burgers that were super expensive. And people made burgers. But I grew up watching a lot of um, British and American um, um, television. Like what? Uh, like Ninja Turtles. <laughs> there was a, this is a specific um, block of shows called the DJ Cat show. It was just like, furry um, puppet that would introduce um, cartoons. And it's like, DJ Cat? DJ Cat. Yeah. Uh, and it was like Ninja Turtles, Silver Birds, yeah, Braveheart, Brave, Heart, Brave just all these like random cartoons. Um, and, but like the commercials would show two things that I remember, cereal, or three things, cereal, toys, and um, fast food and the burgers look so fucking yeah. you know impressive and like plump and just shiny and so I wanted to like I wanted to try a McDonald's burger and see if it was different from what I had had and it was I was like wow it's not as like it's not plump the, 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 the <laughs> bun is you know it's fucking squished and the meat is not as mm. glistening did you like the fries though? I don't remember the fries, so probably no, not. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Wow, that's a. But funny. best fries, fast food, rallies. Do you, know, you know rallies? Yes, rallies, and also known as checkers. Yes. Um, where I grew up in Maryland, there was a checkers. It it was it was a checkers, and then it was transitioning, and it was also a rallies, in Detroit. So uh, yeah, they have the best. They have the best fries. I agree. <laughs> yeah. You can also get them as chili cheese fries. I don't do that. That's, just cheese fries. Uh-huh. That's it. I thought there was more. Yeah, no. The, but then, then I worked at Wendy's for a year when I was 19 years old. And the best combination is hot fries from Wendy's with salt in a Frosty. So you get the fries that are salty. I've seen this. This is amazing, right? I don't, so I'm not well, into this, it. Listen, just, just, just hold on a second. It's salty, right, on the outside. But then, you know how fries are like hard and crunchy on the outside, but then soft on the inside? And so that's that the textural um, component. Then you dip it into the cold, sweet ice cream uh, or frosty thick. And you, you like chocolate and you bite it. And then you lose your job because you're not supposed to eat all <laughs> that work. <laughs> and then you get fired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was what happened. So, yeah, anyway. Um, so I always ask my guests um, if you can talk about one of the worst restaurant experiences you've ever had. Worst restaurant experiences. Um, I, I can't think of anything. What I, maybe in response to that, I want to say that I've been saying this for a time and I finally heard somebody else say this in describing their restaurant experience is that I go to so many restaurants because I travel a lot for work and um, I eat good food that is delicious. But like food has to be more than delicious. You know, like you can't just come to me with some good food. I expect that, you know, like you can't be a nice person and expect to get, or you can't be a decent person or not be a dick and expect that because you're not being a dick, you should get Be some. rewarded. Exactly. And I feel like that's where restaurants are. It's like, we serve good food. And and like and what like everybody serves good like most people like if you're gonna pay money like you're gonna get good food, um, and I don't I don't I don't think like that's enough. I think that there has to be other things that you're doing. You have to be you ha- you have to be doing. So my worst restaurant experience is really just the realization that there are so many restaurants that are mediocre because all they're worried about is like serving good food and they don't know that their food is good but it's not better than everything else that is out there it's mm-hmm. just the same mm-hmm. you know yeah so i also ask guests you know what they kind of make of today's dining culture wherever 
they work or live or, you know. Um, I think with you, what's interesting is that you, you, you cook and you're a chef, and, but you also write. Yeah. So you kind of are like a part of the dining culture, but you're also talking about it. Yeah. What, what do you make of today's dining scene? I think there isn't enough um, competition in the sense that we only have one kind of restaurant. Most restaurants are concerned with feeding people or with providing a dining experience. There, there isn't like another genre of restaurants, say, in the vein of my dinners, in the vein of what, say, like the People's Kitchen Collective are doing or this fellow in um, Philadelphia, Kurt Evans, with his end mass incarceration dinners. Like all these dinners that are focused on um, social issues or focused on, 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 on serving a, a morality um, apart from just the story of how the ingredients got on the plate. And that it's, yeah, we need restaurants as spaces for escape because we need some um, respite from the situations that we live in. But these restaurants also embody the same sort of systems that are causing the stress that we're trying to escape from. And so if every restaurant is that restaurant, um, then we're never going to get to where we need to go. So we need restaurants that are different that create some sort of um, confrontation with this reality uh, to challenge for mindshare, for customers, um, for, um, um, for, for change, these standard restaurants that just serve food. So there isn't enough variety. There actually isn't enough variety in the current slate of restaurants that are doing the sort of food that is celebrated by popular food culture. Yes. yes. So you, you said a bunch of stuff that I want to like okay. tease out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so first, um, Kurt, Kurt Mass? Kurt, Kurt Evans. Kurt Evans. Yeah. Um, his dinners in Philadelphia, I haven't heard of them. What, what are they? So he has these dinners called the EMI dinners and mass in- incarceration. And dude is super cool. I met him when I did a dinner in Philly, and he's a rest, he's a he's a chef in Philly, but um, he's a black dude, and he make, he has his dinners where folks come together and they talk about mass incarceration. He has, I think, I haven't been to to, to the dinners, but I know about them. But he has experts on the subject talk about it, and I want to say portions of sales go to a bail fund. Hmm. But the, like from a culinary perspective, one of the things that he does is he makes in some courses, like jail food. So he made some something with Cheetos and some other shit that apparently people eat in, in detention or in jail. Mm-hmm. And and he served it. And so I thought that was um, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the kinds of things that I'm, I'm talking about. But I'm not talking about it, like, you know, because there is a cynical way to approach this, like a, uh, a cynical and opportunistic way to do this. Or like, let's talk about shit because this is the shit that is trending right now. Yeah. Um, but there's a real way to do this, you know. If you affect it personally, or if you, or if you study deeply, mm-hmm. uh, and if you're doing the work to um, not just in these public spaces, but also in private spaces, to examine your role and how you can um, um, help to end these oppressive um, structures that you are um, cooking about, yeah. um, then to me that's that's valid. So uh, yeah, so his work. Is interesting. I mean, Ben uh, and Christina of, um, or Christina and Ben of um, uh, South Philly um, Babacoa mm-hmm. in, Phil- in, in Philadelphia also. Which, congrats on that uh, chef's table well, episode I, you were a part of. Yeah, it was great. Uh, it was a brief cameo. I don't have to congratulate you. <laughs> <laughs> they one for like two minutes. Uh, it's funny because pe- people were texting me like, congratulations, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, what do I look like? Texting you hey, and saying like I, I'm on chef's table. Yeah, not and mine. the episode is not yeah, about it's you. Yeah, it's not like I was there for like 26 seconds. You know, like <laughs> anyway. Um, but so they they are doing that that sort of um, work as well. Um, I just like there are a bunch of people. I'm, I'm sure the people here in uh, <laughs> in New York City as well who are doing. The, so um, there's a lady Kim Chow. Do you know her? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Food Book Fair is. Also an HRN show. Yeah, so she, 
you know, it's part of Allied Media Conference, and they 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 had this super conceptual restaurant called the Dream Cafe, where mm-hmm. they sort of like imagined the future that was equitable. Um, and so like and all in of, Detroit, it, it, yes, exactly in Detroit, and they took over a restaurant there for a week. And so these are the things that I'm talking about. We need such a we need this sort of vibrancy that competes with um, uh, this sort of escapist. Um, food experience that we are all um, uh, investing in currently. Yeah, so you also said that, you know, the ways in which, I don't think we we realize that, like, restaurants can participate in these oppressive structures. Like, I talk about it a little bit in my writing, but I do still encounter people who are like, you know, how, like, you know, restaurants are where we all, you can go and buy food, and it's like, well... Yeah, that would be great if it were true. Yeah. But restaurants are just as susceptible to the oppressive structures of any anywhere else in the country. I mean, this place that we're staying in, what's this place called? Uh, Roberta's. Roberta's, yeah. Like, isn't, isn't like, so <clears throat> people may argue with this, but this is sort of a, 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 an anecdotal uh, theory, if you will, right? So maybe 15, 15 20 years ago, um, the sort of like anchor development that um, that shaped commercial development mm-hmm. in cities, uh, sorry, the sort of anchor tenant that shaped development in cities was retail, right? So you go to um, a strip and you see a bunch of boutiques, and that was how like commercial development was was attractive to a certain kind of consumer. You know, you have these boutiques and folks can come to and purchase. Um, uh, uh, clothing and accessories and they're like oh this is a cool neighborhood and then they buy property and then that property sort of like gets uh, the, the, the values go up and people get pushed out today you know restaurants are that you know restaurants and bars uh, any city that is trying to develop in a certain sort of way you know to target a certain kind of consumer is looking for an ent- entertainment district that is almost exclusively restaurant bar and then maybe uh, uh, a space for for shows mm-hmm. and so or rest- a coffee shop exactly yep. so food spaces grocery stores especially food spaces have become like a tool of gentrification they are actually at the um, vanguard that even before you know um, more traditional development moves in this sort of first wave of of um, of, of demographic change happens when, you know, a cool, trendy restaurant opens up in a desolate or so-called desolate community and it attracts a certain kind of person. You know, before it was the artists and the galleries uh, and then before then, af- then after that it was the boutiques and now it's restaurants. So restaurants do this. So as, as a physical space in the built environment, restaurants are a tool for exploitation Mm. but then in the restaurant space when you look at the hierarchy of exactly (laughs) you're like touching yeah no i was i had an itch oh i thought you were like indicating (laughs) your skin color which is black yeah it's like (laughs) black in the back and i was scratching my hand but but yeah you you also were signaling but yes i am also black i mean that that is yeah you're black you're a black woman and when you go to restaurants the folks who are usually in the back of the house um, yep. uh, black and brown folks, the folks who are in the front of the house, are white folks. And what that means, is if folks don't know, I'm, I'm sure folks know, but like if you're in front of the house, you make more money than the back of the house. Mm-hmm. But then, but in the back of the house, there's prestige there, right? If you're a chef or if you're whatever. But if you're a person of color, you don't get to be executive chef. You don't get to, you know, have your creation or have what is on the menu attributed to you. Mm-hmm. So there are many ways that restaurants sort of facilitate the continued disenfranchisement of people of color, um, of working class folks. Um, and, and, and we, I, I think not confronting these systems in restaurants is a disservice, right? Like finding restaurant spaces as a place or, or, or contriving of restaurant spaces as a place of escape is problematic because the systems that we're escaping from exist there and then they're reinforced there. Um, and then they're also, you know, upheld there. Uh, and so we have to introduce and disrupt, um, well, we have to in- in- introduce the 
anecdotes in those spaces by disrupting um, the sort of like um, uh, 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 complacency and placidness that is in those spaces because people don't want to think beyond what's on the plate. Right. Yeah. Um, so quick story <laughs> is that, you know, speaking about Roberta's in particular, uh, my husband and I, we weren't married yet, but we came here um, on like a day trip from Boston. And this was seven years ago. And we, know, we, you know, we had heard that Roberta's was a really good restaurant. So we assumed it was like fine dining. And he was in like a full suit. (laughs) And I was was in like a nice dress. Showing out. And heels and earrings. I love it. Yeah, hair up, you know. (laughs) And and then we walked in, and I swear to God, like the record stopped. Everyone was like, (laughs) Like, they're not from here. But before we got into the building, um, the cab driver, because we were staying in Manhattan, he was driving. He was like, are you sure there's a restaurant around here? Like, it looks, you know, yeah. doesn't look safe. What? None of this stuff was here yet. Or there was, like, one or two places. It wasn't, like, this, you know. Bustling. Yeah. Center of empire. It, it wasn't yet. And you see the, the power of restaurant spaces. Exactly. In, like, ter- in economic terms. It just completely changed this, like, you know, five-block radius. There's also, when I went to Nashville, an interesting thing happened for me personally is that I observed folks who were being subversive about how space could be used. So I went to this restaurant called um, Slim and Huskies. And it's a thing in Nashville. It's owned by four black dudes. And these black dudes aren't like black uh, trying to assimilate. They are black and who they are. You know, big beards, they're big gentlemen, you know. They're cool, super cool people. You walk in there, and then just walking in there, because you know spaces have an aesthetic, and you know that we can identify like racially, if you know what I mean. Like you walk in the place, oh, it's a black joint, it's a white joint. This space, you you would think that it was a maybe it had like subway tiles. It had like these like interesting fixtures. Um, It had um, sort of these like um, tables that were wood. And so you'd be like, oh, this is like a, I guess a white-owned joint, you know, subconsciously or whatever. But then you walk in and they're fucking playing 702 uh, R&B music. They're playing Jagged Edge. And then everybody, I swear to Jesus Christ, everybody who's working there is black. And then I walk in there and I'm like, they have my fucking favorite beer. They have like a Belgian triple mm. that you don't even find like anywhere. Like, and like, and they have that shit there and they're serving their, um, they're serving their, um, you know, their, their, pies you know the the pizza and it's black folks doing it and there's a vernacular that is particular to african americans that is present there but then this and then i, I was in line i was seeing this young woman she's just like fucking like dancing and like <laughs> in line waiting for her pizza but it's like a multicultural space the white people there too they're all, all kinds of people like all the young people and the dudes who run it i became kind of friends with and one of the guys, Mo, and I was talking, I'm like, yo, like, was this like purposeful? Like, did you know? It's like, he's like, yeah. And we knew exactly what we were doing. We we're trying to create a space that would like, and I'm using my words now to to approximate what he said, that, that couldn't be easily identified, but that was welcoming, but that was still black, but everybody was there, you know? And I think that, and, and then that community now is gentrifying, you know? Mm. Um, like around them, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, but, but then they are also expanding, you know, they're also getting other places and they, they, you know, they are attempting to hire from within and like grow the company. I mean, these, these are people, these are young men like, like me, they're my age, like in their thirties, four dudes who had a, a business, they sold the business. They didn't get any equity or loans. They opened up their first restaurant, second restaurant. They didn't take out any loans. They have like five locations successful, like four in, um, in Nashville, I think they opened one in Memphis. They're looking at other places around the South to open up. And I just think, uh, you know, that that sort of reality can exist. You know, that in a community that is black, you can have like black businesses that can be successful if they're given a chance. Now, those guys are, they're rare for, uh, 
for many reasons. Like they get a bunch of shit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but the reason why they are rare is because of the overwhelming encroachment of um, sort of like businesses that aren't critical in how they operate, like food businesses. Yeah. Um, and then aid or even assist gentrification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. <laughs> it's, I've been like nodding my head furiously as we've been talking. Um, so my last question for you, which I ask everyone, is if you could have your last meal in a restaurant space, what, where would it be and who was invited? Who's invited? Shit. And you can invite anyone from history, dead or alive, um, celebrities, I don't know anyone you want. All right, so I would say I just I ha- I was in Detroit and my cousin got married, and <clears throat> it was like a family affair, friends, family, people I hadn't seen in like twenty years. I was like with Nigerians all through. I would say like my favorite restaurant would be oh, I have this one dim sum restaurant that I really like in Detroit. It's called um, Shangri La. They have chicken feet. That's delicious. Uh, baked, um, baked, baked pork dim sum. So I'll do that. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll definitely do those. I'll do like the, they also have like a squid and they also have a tripe dim sum dish. I'll do those. I'll do like the custard sweets, um, custard buns, delicious. I'll get down with those and I'll just have like, you would have dim sum. Yeah, I'll have dim sum, uh, and I would have like my my homies with me, like the the kids that I grew up with, um, Nigerians. Yeah, and and they also have uh, final absolution, which is a Belgian triple. Final absolution. Yeah, final absolution. I don't even think I've seen that. It's uh, it's made in. It's a Detroit brewery, and I, it's called Dragon Mead is the brewery, and. Final, Final Absolution is that particular um, label that is a triple. They have that there with the dim sum, and so it's, it's my favorite place. Is that the only thing you'd be drinking, or would you that want would, other stuff? I think I would drink that, and if anything else, I'll add some like rum or whiskey. What kind of rum? Uh, Zacapa. Okay, yeah. Zacapa. I wasn't expecting that's yeah. a rare one. Yeah, um, I'm cultured. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a rum fan too. That's yeah. a that's a rare one. Yeah. Do, do you know um, Therese um, Nelson? Uh, y- yes, okay. I'm like her biggest. Fan. She <laughs> she's been amazing. on the show. Too. She turned me on to that. Like after I did the pop up the sachet thing. Oh my god, I said it. But anyway, after I did the pop up in um, New Orleans, she sent me this note, and she said, "Congratulations on an amazing." Um, Black History Month and then she sent me um, that rum wow it, and it changed and that rum has changed my life because like I don't I prefer rum not to whiskey which is my pre- my favorite drink and if I'm drinking um, rum I said do you have any, do you have Zacapa or anything close to that and mm-hmm. she, so she put me onto that so she is amazing she Therese she yeah. I, when she was on the show I was like I don't know anyone who was like a bigger cheerleader of Black chefs, black writers, she's, she's producer. Like yeah. she's a walking encyclopedia, yeah. and she is consistently and always supportive. Yeah, she and I posted this on on, on Instagram last night because I did a talk last night. She came to it. Yeah, she posted about that, and I was like, "Damn, yeah. I didn't know that was happening." Yeah, <laughs> or else I would have been there. Yeah, and I just like I was thinking like she like I would do dinners. I did my Nashville um, dinners, which I. I was doing, she bought a ticket. Mm. She wasn't going to come. She has done that like two or three times. She would buy tickets to things that I'm doing around the country that she's not coming to. Um, and then like I have, the, I, I'm writing essays and she would like, I would send her a message. I'm like, can you like look at this? And she looks at this. She's like super concise in her thinking and insightful. And she mm-hmm. just like tells me these things. And so she is just so generous and I'm so grateful for her and her influence. Same. And just connecting black folk in food together. Same. And like doing it with like the context of history. Like she, she knows what she's talking about. She's done the research. She like, yeah. 
she's, I she's can't dope. say enough dope good stuff about her. Yeah. Um, so who who else is there? It's your it's your friends from. Yeah, I have two best friends, Ife and Chuck. Um, we are homies for life. Uh, we've known each other since we were like we've known each other for like twelve to fifteen years. We live in different parts of the country now. So I live here. I live in New Orleans. Chuck lives in Seattle. Ife lives in DC. Um, and um, so we talk on the phone. We 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 only text in three way situations mm-hmm. mostly, and then we have this this thing called a TD. It's a tandem where we get up. We have a three way call. <laughs> so we're like, let's TD, and we do this three way call, and then we settle. And I just want to say this because for the record, it's like we have been tight for a long time. Like there was one time where our, our friendship was like tenuous when I was twenty two. And I went to jail, and then Ife and Chuck like stopped talking for a second because of that whole that whole situation. Because it wasn't the three of you communicating at once. Well, because I went to jail, and like I think like because it was like a long story, but like then Chuck was like, "We need to get Tunde out," and Ife was like, "Yo, chill the fuck out. We'll, we'll get him out, get him out tomorrow." And then Chuck was upset that we didn't like they didn't get me out that same day, but they were actually like upset because. Something else had happened, and they didn't talk for a while. And it was it just were you like, guys all together when we it happened? All, yeah, we're all together. We're Wait, you said, okay, out. so all three of you were together, we're all, and you were the one that got arrested? Yeah, because like, I had been drinking, and well, then, I, yeah, I yeah, 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 and then yeah, and then I got kicked out of the of the bar, and then I went into they put me in Ife's car, but somehow I got out of the car into somebody else's car, kicked out the window. They called the police. Where was, was this? This was in Michigan. And so it was like a long thing, but then, but the thing that I want to say is that we've been tight, right? And then, <laughs> and and this is also serious too, is that my friend Ife is like a brilliant person. He's a doctor, and he's like sheer will of of his force. Like he had to become a doctor. He's, well, he's an immigrant. He's on a visa, and he's like under like extreme stress, uh, like being black, being an immigrant, being a doctor. Uh, having he has like half a million dollars in student loans. Wow. Yeah, that you know that his brother had to co-sign for. But I'm 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 getting to the point. Is that so? He was in this very stressful position with his work, with his immigration status. He was like was being threatened. To like they were gonna like he may he may have had to leave the country and then leave his brother with all of these loans. Ooh. His parents had to move from Nigeria to the United States. Um, and then there was that, that was that that was happening, and then I was in D.C. where he lives, and I'm like, "Yo, I'm coming through for a conference. Like, let's all hang out." And he was like, "All right, cool, let's do it." And I could tell from his voice that he it wasn't a good idea. But then I flew in, Chuck flew in, and we hadn't like been together in in um, in a while, and he was just so weird the entire time, just anal and just like weird, like his energy was off. And I'm like, "What the fuck is happening? Why are you like?" And we went out. And it was like a catastrophe, like literally a catastrophe. Like we were, we were fighting, we were, not physically, we were arguing. Mm-hmm. And then we played this game where we like um, um, hit each other or something, like just, just as a game. So we were at the bar and he wasn't feeling it and he hit me and I tried to hit him back, but he dodged and I just like hit his friend, a woman, and I hit her nose with my finger by accident. That grace her nose and she was bleeding everywhere. And then I was like, I, I, I was like, I'm so sorry. I went with her to the bathroom and I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is terrible. And he was like, and he was mad at me. He was like, don't wait outside of the bathroom for her. You're making her uncomfortable. I'm, like, I'm trying to help. <laughs> and then we're arguing like, fuck you. And then like, I, I leave. And the other friend Chuck was like drunk. And then we went to Jimmy John's and he throws up. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Like pink. I was like, so all of that happened. And then we didn't talk to each other for like four or five months. Wow. You know? And it's just been like bothering me. Um, and, but then like we're slowly like, I don't know, like putting all that together and talking. Um, but, the, but the thing, like the story there is like, there's so much like emotional pressure on, on, on everybody, right? But on immigrants. Yes. Like, and this is he's, he's like successful like but like this shit is like affecting his life and we have friends who have been a friend who like had a mental breakdown because mm-hmm. of his like an actual 
like he was the doing some sh- yeah yeah he was doing some crazy like he he's fine now but like he ran out into the fucking freeway like that kind of shit um and we don't have ways that we deal with mental health issues in our community i'm talking about the african nigerian community and as men and all that shit and so i'm just grateful for them for all of my friends who are trying in different ways to just manage mm-hmm. situations that are stressful so i want to have dim sum and be with them that's why i told and them. then that's it and then that's, that's your last that, meal that's my last meal i can i can go that's a good way to yeah. to go i think yeah i think this is the longest episode of hungry society ever <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. It's not like a bad thing. Uh, yeah, of course it can be bad. <laughs> it's, not, it's not bad at all. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. I'm. Uh, this is fun. I've been drinking some whiskey from your like extensive collection right here. That's another uh, show's whiskey. Uh, <laughs> we'll deal with that later. That's okay though. I'm glad okay. you had a good time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so well, much. Where can listeners find out more information about your dinners, about you? Where can people follow you? Uh, uh, Instagram from underscore lagos but it's sort of like oblique like i don't really i post random things so i don't know you can just i don't know just instagram is what i'm saying (laughs) you also have the website i have a website from lagos.com but it it doesn't it just shows the things that i have done in a very truncated way it doesn't say what i'm about to do what i'm thinking about yeah just keep your ear to Keep your ears peeled. Your eyes peeled, your ears open. <laughs> your I don't know. <laughs> eyes peeled, yeah, ears, ears open. open. Yeah. If we're going by, you know. Peel your ears open with your eyes. Um, yeah, <laughs> just do that. Well, thank this has been so much fun. Thank you. I mean, I feel like this is the longest episode ever because like I'm such a rambler. No, because I am, I am, but <laughs> because you talk about a lot of really interesting things and you know, I just wanna hear more and you know Thank you. All that. So this is great. This thank is you perfect. for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week on A Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 